Welcome to MWJH Ramcast. This is episode 28. Beware, we are going to be listening to some Halloween stories from the Scary Halloween Stories website, American Forlore, told by our fabulous library aides. Only a happy few Halloween. are posted, but we hope you enjoy and have a safe Halloween. Retold by S. E. Glosser, found on American Folklore. Scary Halloween Stories. A storm was raging that night in 1735 when Mother Leeds was brought to bed in childbirth. The room was full of womenfolk gathered to help her, more of curiosity than goodwill. They had all heard the rumors that Mother Leeds was involved in witchcraft and had sworn she would give birth to a devil. Tension mounted when at least the baby arrived. It was a relief when the baby was born completely normal. But a few moments later, before their terrified eyes, the child began to change. The room erupted with screams as the child grew at an enormous rate, becoming taller than a man and changing into a beast, which resembled a dragon, with a head like a horse, a snake-like body, and bat wings. As soon as it was full grown, the monster began beating all the women, including his mother, with its thick forked tail. With a harsh cry, it flew through the chimney and vanished into the storm. The mother of Leeds, or the Jersey Devil, as he was later called, still haunts the pines of New Jersey, wreaking havoc upon farmers, crops, and livestock, poisoning pools and creeks, and appearing on the New Jersey New Jersey shore just before a shipwreck. She lived deep in the forest in a tiny cottage and sold herbal remedies for a living. Folks living in the town nearby called her Bloody Mary, and she was a witch. None dared cross the old crone for fear that their cows would go dry. Their food stores rot away before winter. Their children take sick of fever or any number of terrible things that an angry witch could do to her neighbors. Then the little girls in the village began to disappear, one by one. No one could fight the, find out where they had gone. Grief-stricken families searched the woods, the local buildings, all the houses and barns. But there was no sign of the missing girls. She denied them any knowledge of the disappearances. Still, it was noted was it working that before? her haggard appearance cha- had changed. She looked younger, more attractive. Over there. The neighbors Here. were suspicious. Write your name. But they could know, uh, could find no proof <laughs> that the witch had taken their young ones. Hush, little baby, don't say a word. Mama's gonna buy you a mockingbird. And if that mockingbird 
When her daughter left the house, she screamed for her husband and followed the girl outside of the door. In his nightshirt, together they tried to restrain the girl, but she kept breaking away from them and heading out of town. The next time a prisoner passed the desperate away, cries of the miller and his wife woke, woke the neighbors. Into the with the dead body. They came to assist the frantic the morning, couple. The Suddenly, a sharp-eyed farmer gave a shout and pointed towards the strange light at the edge the of the woods. A few townsmen followed him out into the field no and saw Bloody Mary. Standing beside a large oak tree holding a magic wand that was pointed towards the miller's house. She was glowing with an unearthly light as she set her evil spell upon the miller's daughter. The prisoners were all very healthy that summer. As she burned, Bloody Mary screamed a curse at the villagers. If anyone mentioned her name aloud, no one sent her spirit to avenge herself upon them for her terrible death. When she was dead, the villagers went to the house in the woods and found the unmarked grave of the little girls the evil witch had murdered. She had used their blood to make her young again. From that day to this, anyone foolish enough to chant Bloody Mary's name three times before a darkened mirror will summon the vengeful spirit of the witch. It is said that she will tear their bodies to pieces and rip their souls from their mutilated bodies. The soul of these unfortunate ones will burn in torment as Bloody Mary once was burned, and they will be trapped forever in the mirror. Galahan was huddled in a cavern near the Pacific Ocean when the feds closed in. There were still shreds of human flesh under his fingernails when the serial killer surrounded the inevitable capture. They could put him behind bars, he vowed, as they dragged him down the narrow path towards the waiting cars. But he would escape, and they'd be sorry. He lashed out at the nearest officer, landing a crippling blow on his kneecap. The remaining men knocked him to the ground and bound him foot and hand to ensure his cooperation. He was sentenced to a lonely prison for the criminally insane. His only companions, the wardens, and the fellow madmen. Over the next 17 years, Callahan spent every spare second planning his escape. He studied every weakness in the prison system. He knew every guard's movement. He spent several years contriving to get the ground floor cell so he could dig his way out. The plan nearly succeeded until he reached bedrock a few feet below the cell floor. With every failed plan, his anger grew. He would escape this wretched cell if it killed him. As the years passed, Callahan noticed that one elderly prisoner Old Ben had become the general handyman and undertaker around the remote prison. It was Old Ben's job to put the deceased prisoners into a pine coffin where they lay overnight in the, ch in the prison chapel. The next morning, Old Ben and the warden would ride out to the cemetery a mile or so outside the prison gates to bury the deceased prisoner. Then, the warden left Old Ben behind to fill the hole while he drove back to the prison for his morning coffee. 
With this knowledge, it didn't take Callahan long to come up with a new escape plan. It was simple. The next time a prisoner passed away, he would creep into the chapel after dark and slip into the coffin with the dead body. In the morning, the warden and Old Ben would take the coffin out of the prison to the cemetery to bury the deceased. As soon as the warden left, Old Ben would open the coffin and let Callahan out. With no one the wiser, it didn't take the serial killer long to befriend Old Ben and to get the undertaker to agree to help Callahan gain his freedom. Unfortunately, the prisoners were all very healthy that summer and through the long colorful autumn that followed. No one caught so much as a chill and when New Year came, no prisoner fatalities in nearly eight months. Day after day, he listened for the bell that told whenever a prisoner died, but it did not ring. Callahan was tempted to expedite the matters by killing someone with his bare hands, but such an action if discovered, would mean solitary confinement for the serial killer, and he would be unable to enact his brilliant plan. So he waited and waited. It was late February when the expedited bell tolled dolefully through the prison. Snow was falling in the yard where Callahan marched with his fellow prisoners during the daily exercise routine when the bell tolled. Wonder who it is this time, muttered a burly man just ahead of Callahan. The serial killer's hands shaking with joy could care less who it was. The time had come. Tomorrow, he would be free. That night, Galan entered the dark chapel and felt his way to the front. Yes, there was a coffin standing on top of two pine benches. He lifted the lid and the smell of embalming chemicals filled his nostrils. He jerked back a little. Old Ben has done his job well. Callahan groped his way inside the coffin and lay down on top of the inert mass inside. Then he closed the lid. As he lay in the coffin waiting for dawn, the serial killer felt his skin begin to crawl. He'd kill more than 25 people in his life without qualm or remorse, but this death watch made him itch all over. The chemical smell of the corpse below him made his stomach roll. Only the determination of 17 years of planning kept him in the coffin. It would soon be over in the morning. He would be free of this foul air and his rotting company. Old Ben would free him as soon as the warden was gone. Galahan dozed off towards the dawn and awakened to feel the coffin shaking as it was lifted off the wooden benches. He heard mumbled voices overhead. Old Ben and the warden must have been moving the coffin into the waiting car. Galahan shivered as the cold February air encompassed the coffin. The constant shaking of the coffin increased his nausea. Callahan forced down the vial in his throat. Almost free, almost free, he chanted the words silently in his head, ignoring the foul smell emanating from the dead company. Finally, the car stopped and the coffin was lifted down. Callahan felt a thump as it landed at the bottom of the grave. His heart thudded with joy. Now was his moment. Now the warden would leave Old Ben to fill the grave while he went back to the prison for his morning coffee. Instead, something thudded on the lid of the coffin just above over Callahan's head. He strained his eyes against the pitch darkness of the coffin. It must have been the warning throwing a bit of symbolical dirt onto the coffin at the end of the ceremony. But the thudding continued, and Callahan's heart began to pound with fear. They were burying the coffin with him in it. How could that be? After all these years, how had the warden chosen this day of all to help frail old Ben? The thudding grew fainter as the grave was filled in above Callahan. 
After a few moments, the foul air inside the coffin grew thin and hot, and the chemical smell was almost overwhelming. Callahan vomited all over his clothing. Before he could stop himself, he pounded the lid in, of the coffin in the darkness and shouted, Come on, old Ben, kill the warden if you must, hurry up. Then a terrible thought struck him, making his heart pound in sudden horror. What if? What if? Callahan fumbled in his pockets and pulled out a match. He struck it, and in the sudden flickering brightness, he turned his head and looked down below him, into the pelf dead face of old Ben. This is the story of the Lady in the Veil, retold by S.E. Slosher. He had not expected to meet the woman of his dreams, but there she was, strolling along in the moonlit night beside the cemetery. Carlos quickened his pace until he was level with her, hoping for a glimpse of her face under her veil. Carlos made a few remarks about the beautiful night and the lovely weather, anything to keep her talking. She stopped abruptly and turned to face him. He caught a glimpse of dark eyes glinting behind the veil. What is it you want? she asked. A date, senorita. Just a date, Carlos beamed at her. She paused and said, I do not know. Ask me again in this place at this time tomorrow night and we shall see. Carlos's heart leapt in his chest, so she was going hard to get? Well, fair enough. He would see her tomorrow, and then she would fall into his arms. The next day dragged by the infatuated Carlos, and he had trouble concentrating on his work. But at last, he was free and running a few blocks to his home to change into a suitable outfit. He could barely contain himself, and he reached to the cemetery a few minutes early. She was not there yet, so Carlos entertained himself by picturing his beautiful bride in their new home. Suddenly, she was there in front of him. The moonlight sparkled off her veil. Carlos was enchanted. They talked for hours, standing in front of the graveyard. She was as witty as she was beautiful, and Carlos begged her for a date. We will go out tomorrow night, she said. I will send you a letter with the place and time. <coughs> Carlos kissed her hand and floated away so happy he wanted to sing for joy. Carlos was absolutely useless at work the next day. After work, he rushed home and found a letter in his mailbox. Eagerly, he read it, not pausing to wonder how she knew where he lived. Then he ran next door to show it to Diego, his closest cousin. Diego went pale when he read her signature, Rosa Gonzalez. This must be the same Rosa that died in a car crash last year. Diego tried to warn Carlos, but Carlos was already in love. That night, as Carlos hurried to the cemetery, Diego followed, certain that his cousin was in over his head. Carlos bounded over to Rosa. At last, we go out, he cried to her. But first, my love, show me your face. At his words, Rosa pulled aside to face. Back at the gate, Diego gave a gasp of shock, for she had the desiccated face of a skeleton. He was frozen to the spot by the power of the evil specter, unable to warn Carlos. Looking down, Carlos only saw the glamour of the ghost was projecting. As the skeleton's withered arms trapped him, the veil on his eyes was lifted, and he realized in one heart-stopping moment the abomination he was kissing. 
The ground opened up with a laugh of triumph. The specter pulled him down and down into her tomb. The earth closed over Carlos and Rosa. Diego, freed from the ghost's spell, ran into the cemetery shouting his cousin's name in terror. But it was too late. Oh, you hear the stories about how dangerous Ouija boards are. But hey, it's just a game. Mary waited until midnight to begin our little game, and the four of us, Sarah, Jesse, me, and Mary, started by asking all kinds of silly questions. It was a strange looking board, covered with letters and symbols. There was a plastic pointer that was supposed to move across the board at the behest of the spirits. The instructions called it a planchet. Around 1.30 in the morning, the planchet suddenly froze in Mary's hand. It wouldn't move, no matter how much we pushed and pulled. Mary turned her frightened blue eyes toward me. I'm not doing it, she said, lifting her hands. I grabbed the planchet myself and tried to push it around, but it was fixed to the board. Suddenly, a kind of electric shock buzzed through my fingers. I gasped and tried to pull my fingers away from the planchet, but they were stuck. Mary and Jessie both tried to pull my fingers away. Nothing helped. The other girl started, stared with wide, round eyes as the planchet came alive under my fingers, which were still fixed to its surface, and began to move. Help, the word spelled out under my hand. Help me. Help me. The planchet kept moving back and forth between the H-E-L-P continuously, until Sarah cried out, Who are you? Amber, the board spelled. My name is Amber. I am eight years old. What's wrong? Mary asked. Her face was so white, all the freckles stood out like darkened age spots. Water. Danger. Help. Scared. The words spelled out as fast as my hand could move. Call 911, Mary cried suddenly. Quick. Amber is in danger. By this time, Sarah was gasping into the phone. Then she hung up the phone. They wouldn't listen to me, she told us, almost in tears. At that instant, my hand was suddenly free from the planchet. She's gone, I gasped. See if you can contact her again, Mary said urgently. We need to know if she's okay. I picked up the plastic planche again. Amber, are you there? I asked softly, afraid of what might happen. After a long pause, it moved slowly across the board and spelled out the words, too late. And after another long pause, water, flood, drowned, mobile, Alabama. The planchet stopped. I knew that Amber was gone. None of us got much sleep that night. In the morning, we, washed, we rushed through breakfast and then looked up the Alabama news on the internet. None of us were surprised to read that there had been flash floods the night before. I read the names of those who had died in the flood. One of the victims was an eight-year-old girl named He had not expected to meet the woman of his dreams. But there she was strolling along in the moonlight beside the cemetery. Carlos quickly quickened his pace until he was level with her, hoping for a glimpse of her face under the veil. Carlos made a few remarks about the beautiful night and the lovely weather, anything to keep her talking. She stopped abruptly, abruptly and turned to face him. He caught a glimpse of dark eyes glinting behind the veil. What is it? What is it you want? she asked. A date, senorita, just a date, Carlos beamed at her. She paused and said, I don't know. Ask me again in this place at the same time tomorrow night and we shall see. Carlos' heart leapt in his chest. 
So she was playing hard to get. Well, fair enough. He would see her tomorrow, and then she would fall into his arms. The next day dragged by for the infatuated Carlos. He had trouble concentrating on his work, but at last he was free and running the few blocks to his home to change into a suitable outfit. He could barely contain himself and he reached the cemetery a few minutes early. She was not there yet, so Carlos entertained himself by picturing his beautiful bride in their new, in their new home. Suddenly, she was there in front of him. Moonlight sparkled off her veil. Carlos was enchanted. They walked, they talked for hours, standing in front of the graveyard. She was, she was as witty as she was beautiful, and Carlos begged her for a date. We will go out tomorrow night, she said. I'll send you a letter with the place and time. Carlos kissed her hand and floated away, so happy he wanted to sing for joy. Carlos was absolutely useless at work the next day. After work, he rushed home and found a letter in his mailbox. Eagerly, eager, eagerly he read it, not pausing to wonder how she knew where he lived. Then he ran to the door to show Diego, his closest cousin. Diego went pale when he read her signature. Rosa Gonzaga. This must be Rosa that died in the car crash last year. Diego tried to warn Carlos, but <clears throat> Carlos was already in love. Denied, as Carlos hurried to the cemetery, Diego followed, certain that his cousin was in over his head. Carlos bounded over to Rosa. At last, we go out, he cried to her. But first, my love, show me your face. At his words, Rosa pulled aside the veil back at the gate. Diego gave a gasp of shock, for she had the deceased face of a skeleton. He was frozen to the spot by the power of the evil specter, unable to warn Carlos. Looking down, Carlos only saw the glamour the ghost was projecting, as the skeleton's withered arm, arms trapped him. The veil on his eyes was lifted, and he realized in one heart-stopping moment the abomination he was kissing. The ground opened up with a laugh of triumph, the specter pulled him down and down into her tomb. The earth closed over Carlos and Reza. Diego, freed from the ghost spell, ran into the cemetery, shouting his cousin's name in terror, but it was too late. Carlos was dead, locked for all of time in Rosa's arms. Our friends, Shoss and Sandy, were firm believers in ghosts and claimed to have seen the mysterious red-haired phantom that haunted Room 44. My wife and I were sitting with them at dinner one night, and we started kidding them about it. Funny how we've never seen them, and we drive that stretch of road all the time. My wife, Jill, drawled. You skeptic, said Sandy. Sandy said, emphasizing the word as if it were a curse. One of these days, you're going to find out all right, and you owe me a pizza. If you ever see the ghostly, ghostly hitchhiker, I'll buy you a large pizza every day for a year, I promised. The evening ended pleasantly. It wasn't too long before Jill and I were driving home through the crisp fall air 
Let's take Route 44, Jill said suddenly, flashing me a sideways look, hoping to see a ghost. I chuckled, turning, taking this turn as she directed. Ha! Jill snorted dervishly. She yawned and turned her head to face the passenger window. Suddenly, she let out a shriek of sheer terror. I jumped and glanced sideways, my hand shaking on the spirit steering wheel. A red-haired man with a bushy beard wearing a plaid shirt and blue jeans was running right next to the passenger side of the car. He kept glancing at the window and leering at Jill. Heart pounding in terror, I hit the gas. A moment later, I glanced in the rear window and saw the red-haired man sitting in the back of our car. Jill shrieked again and began pummeling the phantom with her purse. I kept looking back and forth between my wife, the phantom, the road ahead, determined not to let the red-haired ghost force us into a fatal accident. I glanced towards the back seat for a moment, and the phantom laughed, a laugh that made my teeth tingle and the hairs on my neck stand up. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, blessed is the fruit of my womb, Jesus. Jill gabbled the words of rosary. Glancing in the mirror, I saw the phantom grimace as she recited the holy words. Then he vanished without a trace. I got us there much faster than the speed limit allowed. I was shaking from head to toe. Jill was sobbing hysterically. As soon as I pulled in the driveway and turned off the car, I right into my arms and held her as tightly as I could. We climbed together for a long time until both of us had stopped shaking and Jill's sobs had abided. I want to go inside, Jill whispered against my neck. I nodded, not trusting my voice. That night, we discussed the incident, but oddly enough, neither of us had nightmares. When we woke in the morning, I felt much better about this whole thing. So I remember the promise that, to Sandy the night before. I yawned and then clasped my hand over the mouth, uh, over my mouth to lust sound to wake my wife. Too late, she opened her eyes. Her, she opened her green eyes and gave me a sleepy sigh. You owe Sandy a yours with the pizza. I most certainly do. I replied, rubbing the back of her neck gently. I Dancing with the devil, the girl hurried through her schoolwork as fast as she could. It was the night of the school, the high school dance, along about seventy years ago in the of the town of Kingsville, Texas. The girl was so excited about the dance. She had just bought a brand new sparkly red dress for the dance. She knew she looked smashing in it. It was going to be the best evening of her life. Then, her mother came in, pale and determined. You are not going to do that dance, her mother said. But why? The girl asked her mother. I've been talking to the preacher. He says that the dance is going to be for the devil. You're absolutely forbidden to go, her mother said. The girl nodded as if she accepted her mother's words, but she was determined to go to the dance. As soon as her mother was busy, she put on the brand new red dress and ran down, ran down to the Casey Hall where the dance was being held. As soon as she walked in the room, all the guys turned to look at her. She was startled by all the attention. Normally, no one noticed her. Her mother sometimes accused her of being awkward to get a boyfriend, but she was not awkward that night. The boys in her class were fighting with each other to dance with her. Later, she broke away from the crowd and went, into the ta went to the table to get some punch. She heard a certain hush. The music stopped. She turned. She saw a handsome man with jet black hair and clothes sitting next to her. Dance with me, he said. She managed to stammer a yes, completely stunned by the gorgeous man. He led her out to the dance floor. The music sprang up at once. She found herself dancing better than she ever danced before. They were the center of the attention. The man spun her around and around. She gasped her breath, trying to st step out of the spin. 
policeman her faster and faster. Her feet fell hot, before seeing the melt under her. She spun even faster. She was spinning so fast that a cloud of dust flew up around them so that both of them were hidden from the crowd. When the dust settled, the girl was gone. The man in back plowed to the crowd and disappeared. The devil had come to his party, this party, and has spun the girl all the way to hell.